Friends, thank you for this uh, kind invitation to be with you. A question for us this morning. If we are suffering according to the will of God for bearing the name of Christ, how do we suffer? Peter gets very specific here, doesn't he? He says in verses 12 and verse 16, not with surprise and shame. So first, not with surprise. Look at verse 12 again. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the painful trial you are suffering as though something strange were happening to you. Uh, How many of you are students here at the seminary? Just raise your hand if you're a student. Okay, a number of you. You're not surprised to find tests here, are you? I mean, that's, we would expect that at a seminary. I mean, are you surprised to find audits in business or sickness in a hospital or combat on a battlefield? Well, then we're not to be surprised to find suffering as we follow Christ in a fallen world. Peter is saying here, look, even as your old friends think it's strange and surprising that you don't plunge with them into the flood of destructive immorality that you used to engage in so you seem to be surprised by their reaction it's almost like you're as surprised as they are but you shouldn't be friend a christian is not strange to suffering and therefore when we meet with suffering along the way we must not be surprised by it it should not confuse us uh, I remember one time when I was driving around Montgomery and Frederick counties in Maryland, uh, just north of the district, on one of my rare escapes. I was driving around looking for a particular farmer's market that I had seen that had some really amazing fresh apple cider. And I, I wanted to find it again. And I was, my wife says about me, I'm always confident and sometimes right. And uh, I, was, I was once again in directions, confident, driving around looking for it. Couldn't find it. Thought, was this familiar? I don't know. I'd been driving around. Think, sure, I was getting closer to it. Finally, I ended up on a single track road, and I realized I'm completely and utterly lost. I mean, I do not recognize this single track road. I need to turn around, drive to a main road, and, and find my way. And surely I, I did. I, I, I don't want to say I was lost. Let's just say I was a bit uncertain of my way. And I would see something and think, did I see this before or not? Well, anyway, that single track road made me realize. I had to go a different way, and I did find the right road again, and the sights became familiar, and I found the market that I was looking for. Now, it was the things that I wasn't expecting that let me know I was on the wrong road. Uh, These Christians here that Peter is writing to were not expecting suffering. And yet Peter here exhorts them that they should. Meeting suffering on their road shouldn't surprise them. It shouldn't cause them to doubt that they're in the right way. Indeed, it's suffering for doing good, for bearing the name of Christ. It's suffering that should actually encourage them that they are on the right way. Indeed, it should be more worrying to us if we think we found a way to follow Christ that bypasses suffering. Friend, if that's your experience, that you've found a way to follow Christ that bypasses suffering, I would ask you to Give some time today to self-examination to see if perhaps it really is Christ that you're following. Because if that's the case, it seems like you found a better way than Jesus. As C.S. Lewis's screw tape 
wrote to Wormwood, the safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. But friends, the way of Christ is not like that. Peter clearly says that this way includes suffering because it's going against the grain of this fallen world, and therefore they shouldn't be surprised. Now, of course, this is difficult, but as Spurgeon said, better to go to heaven, halt, and maimed than go marching on in confidence down to hell. Hardship and suffering, because we're Christians, should not be surprising to us if we're Christians. Well, Peter goes on and says here, not only should such suffering for Christ not be met with surprise, it should not be met with shame. I think verse 16 is particularly useful for believers in our nation today. Look at verse 16 again. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed. But praise God that you bear that name. Such suffering is no shame to us. It is no disgrace. Even if others begin to view it as oddly wrong, unpleasantly over-righteous, we shouldn't be convinced by them. And to be ashamed is to be convinced by them. It is to adopt their reading of matters of the truth, when really it's the furthest thing from it. Suffering as a Christian will work to everlasting glory, not to, to shame and reproach and scorn. It's this wrong world which would shame these Christians then, and we Christians now for following Christ. But those who present themselves now as the final purveyors of moral fashion will not prevail ultimately. Their reading of the situation should not be taken as final. Now again, just thinking where I am, I'm in a seminary, I want to be very honest with you. If you're one of those people who cannot stand disappointing people, then you are going to have a particularly hard time being a Christian, let alone a pastor. Because the temptation to avoid what others consider shameful may well feel like an insuperable obstacle to you. Non-Christians will consider stands you take and opinions you hold, habits you indulge on the one hand or refrain from on the other. Some non-Christians, I say, will consider your stands and opinions, your practices and abstinences shameful. And I'm sorry to say that's increasingly the case. I've often felt like the Lord has called me to a ministry of sort of tarring the ark before the flood. We need to think carefully about what it means to be a Christian and to be a local church. Let me give you one pertinent and perhaps portentous example of our changing social world. The acceptance of the last 20 years of this category vaguely called hate crimes. A hate crime is a particularly odious kind of crime which is committed against people because of their race, religion, national origin, or sexual orientation. Twenty years ago, President Clinton, at a White House conference he convened, proposed that the Departments of Justice and Education distribute to each of the nation's school districts a manual for educators that addresses these hate crimes at their roots. And this curriculum would encourage schools to confront hate-motivated behavior among students, according to a summary sheet released by the White House. 
It also said that the manual would promise the development of, quote, comprehensive responses to prejudice and violence. Oh, friends, there's so much there we could think of. Let's just take the one word prejudice. Prejudice. Well, I looked up what I'd written about this 20 years ago for a sermon at Capitol Hill. Here were my reflections in 1996. Quote, would prejudice include thinking that homosexuality is wrong? I must confess that as I read that and put that together with some other things I'd heard lately, I did begin to wonder if Christians who not only believe that Scripture clearly teaches that homosexuality is wrong, but say that and even teach it publicly, will in our nation be labeled as prejudiced, hate mongers, sowing the seeds of violence, and if we will be imprisoned for such expressions. Well, friends, it was ominous 20 years ago. It's reality today. That's just one example I have for you. You have to ask, are you prepared for such opposition? I know that when we have friends from Africa uh, come to our church to do the internship that we have uh, for pastors in training, because the climate is so different in Washington, D.C. from sub-Saharan Africa, uh, they're often surprised by the need for a coat or the coat they have they heard they needed is insufficient to the cold that we give out. So the climate feels hostile to them in a surprising way. Because where they live, there's no need for coats, let alone walls sometimes. The climate for our obedience is changing. Like the climate changes for our African friends when they come to colder parts of the globe. Well, are we to be ashamed for following Christ for believing the Bible as Christians have for centuries? If so, more than the situation being new for us believers, it's really very, very old. As John says in 1 John 3, we should not be surprised if the world hates us. If you're violent towards someone based on hatred and you suffer for it, that would be suffering for doing evil, which Peter says here Christians should never be guilty of. But if you are simply teaching the Bible, don't be surprised and don't be ashamed for doing it faithfully. What's a Christian to do? Friends, that's our predicament. And this book of 1 Peter seems as relevant as it ever has. If you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. Don't be surprised for suffering by Christ. Don't be ashamed of it. Well, if that's how we're not supposed to encounter suffering, meet it for Christ, how are we to meet it? Well, and what Peter says here simply is with with rejoicing and with praising. Peter says first, if you look down in verse 13, with rejoicing. But rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. So this call to participate in the sufferings of Christ is neither suicidal nor sadistic. We can have joy in such sufferings in the same way parents can rejoice at the baby at night if they know the baby's crying is part of their teething. It's part of this suffering they go through for a good end. Well, friends, these sufferings that we go through, they're part of the birth pangs of the new age. If those things we suffer are actually a part of the sufferings of Christ then we should rejoice in them as the evidence that we are united with Christ. We should rejoice in suffering for following Christ. 
then too it's no surprise to find that such sufferings would also be met with with praising. He says in verse 16, however, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. This kind of suffering gives us further evidence that God has called us to bear the name of Christ and to live for him as his. So rather than doubting God because of suffering in our lives or even cursing him because of it, we Christians praise God for the privilege of knowing who we are and that we are, as Christ said, blessed for bearing persecution because of following him. And friends like Christ accepted suffering. So we who follow him accept our suffering. Our will becomes conformed to his, even as his was to his heavenly fathers. And so we meet suffering for Christ, not with surprise or shame, but with praise, with rejoicing. So suffering for Christ shows that you are Christ's. That you're on his side in the great change that is taking place. And that brings me to my second and final point. Peter tells these Christians that they should be living with the end in view. Look there again at verse 17. The end of those for whom the good news of salvation in Christ is rejected. Verse 17. For it is time for judgment to begin with the house of God. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is hard for the righteous to be saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Now, many Christians, when they read this immediately, go, wait a minute, wait a minute. You mean we're going to be judged? And uh, it's true that the first half of verse 17 and the first half of verse 18 talk of this. Peter writes, it is time for judgment to begin with the house of God the family of God, his household, his house, the house of God means, of course, his church, uh, the spiritual house. He's mentioned it back in chapter 2 in verse 5, the house that Christians were being built into, the dwelling place of God. Well, it, it just makes sense that we would be the priority for God's concern for his holiness and righteousness to be reflected. And the trials that these Christians that Peter was writing to, the trials that they were currently in, enduring uh, would seem to them to be a winnowing, uh, a, a fiery judgment of God in that sense through which they would be delivered. Peter's clear about that. He quotes from the book of Proverbs here. It is hard for the righteous to be saved. It is hard. But the point is that they will be saved. True, saved only by dealing adequately with God's holiness and justice in a way which the writer to the Proverbs could only dimly have imagined, apart from the revelation of the Holy Spirit. But dealing with it, and so the righteous would be saved. The righteous God would deal with unrighteous man in love by sending his son to live a perfectly righteous life and die an unrighteous death on the cross, bearing the sin and shame that all of his own had deserved, that all of those who would repent and trust in him, so that when God raised him from the dead, it would be for our justification, so that we would be made right with God when the Son ascended and presented his sacrifice to his heavenly Father, and it was accepted. In that sacrifice of himself being accepted, brothers and sisters, we were accepted. 
we have gone through the judgment of God in Christ. But the weight of what Peter says here in verses 17 and 18 is that since it is hard for the righteous to be saved, so hard in fact that Christ had to die for us and make us righteous, how then will those who reject this sacrifice of Christ, how will they be saved? If the death of Christ has been required for the salvation of sinners, what will become of the sinners who reject this sacrifice? As the writer to the Hebrews says, how shall we escape if we ignore such a great salvation. So the, these Christians have been the ones who have felt under threat, but Peter says that's not what's really going on. That's not really the case. The pursuers will become the pursued. Those who have judged you will themselves be judged. As those who rejected Noah's message of righteousness fell under the flood of God's judgment. Even so, these unbelievers here, disobedient to the gospel, living in a flood of dissipation, would themselves be drowned in God's judgment. Peter is arguing here from the lesser to the greater, and he's saying to them, look, you who already have some idea of how great your current trials are, these are nothing compared to what will befall those who continue to disobey God and reject his gospel. This thing will be so great that Peter best expresses it with questions which ring in his hearers' ears. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is hard for the righteous to be saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? So the non-Christians who were persecuting these believers should be living with this end in view. They should realize what is coming, and they should persuade them to change their way. And yet the purpose of these words here was clearly not so much to dissuade the ungodly from their ungodliness, because this letter was written to Christians. Uh, Verse 17, the us, you look at verse 17, us. Peter there assumes his audience are Christians in these churches scattered throughout Asia, Pontus, Galatia, Cappadonia, Bithynia. This is therefore written as a consolation to Christians to let them know that not only are these guys who are persecuting them not to be feared or envied for their power, they are to be pitied. They are to be prayed for. They are to be preached to. Those who do not obey the gospel of God, the ungodly, the sinner, these are the ones who are really in mortal danger. Not the Christians. In one sense, these two verses are like a little synopsis of the book of Revelation. I love the image of John. I don't know how many of you have gotten to travel to the Isle of Patmos. It's not much. And uh, the cave reputedly where John received the revelation. Who knows? But you can imagine the aged apostle there, uh, exiled in that sense, surrounded by the might of the Roman Empire. And what does he come out with? Well, the book of Revelation, which threatens the might of every human empire that has ever existed. Because he sees surrounding these empires of earth, the greater empire of heaven and its certain and coming victory. It's that spirit that Peter is partaking of here. It's one of danger and warning to those who would persecute Christians. But for those who accept the good news of salvation in Christ, 
Look at verse 19. Peter's instructions are clear, plain, confident, positive. Christians, he says, should commit themselves to their faithful creator. Verse 19. So then those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator. Uh, Don't take matters into your own hands by trying to grab the steering wheel back from God so that you can go on easier, more lovely roads. The way to live when suffering according to God's will comes is to commit yourself to that very one, that very sovereign God who created us in the first place. Commit yourself to him. He is trustworthy. He is full of all power. He is the right one to invest your life in. And then when you've done that, when you've looked forward and you've said, I'll go his way, I'm trusting him entirely for directions, you should continue to do good. That's what he says in verse 19. So then those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. As the psalmist said in Psalm 37, trust in the Lord and do good. We're not just to sit back on our religious haunches and say that at one point we trusted in the Lord or that we committed ourselves to him. No, we must continue on the way, continue to do good, even when those around us oppose the good we would do. Now, friends, I'm aware that this is certainly easier to preach than it is to live. Preachers of all people know this. We work hard on our sermons, and those sermons that we work hard on are easier than the lives we preach we should live. We understand that. We trust God, who often draws the strings of our lives tight when he would play beautiful music upon it. So we Christians are called to be like Christ, who committed his way to God and therefore continued in it even when it led to the cross. We Christians are to live with the end in view, the end of those who wrongly persecute us and our own end if we commit ourselves to our faithful creator and continue to do good. This little verse, verse 19, is a wonderful summary of Peter's message wonderful summary of Christian ethics, of Christian resolve. Some of you are old enough that you've heard of J.I. Packer. Some of you may know that uh, Jim's dissertation was on Baxter. I think a kind of unworthy topic for such a wonderful mind, but there it is. He worked specifically on Baxter on the atonement. What a lot of you may not know is that his supervisor was Jeffrey Nuttall who wrote The Puritan, the Holy Spirit and Puritan Faith and Experience and other extraordinary books. I think uh, with the privilege God gave me to study various places, I've, I've met some really brilliant people. I think Jeffrey Nuttall is probably the most brilliant scholar I've ever met. He uh, was someone who I had the privilege to get to know when I lived in England in the late 1980s and early 90s. Well, it was in the 1950s that he had supervised Packer's doctoral dissertation and Jeffrey and I had wonderful conversations. He asked me, whatever happened to Packer? You know, he's not an evangelical. He hadn't heard that Jim had gone on and published books and become something of a minor celebrity among evangelical Christians. But one time I remember I was talking with Jeffrey about a decision that I had in front of me, which uh, I knew was going to be awkward. Uh, Jeffrey was a widower. He lived up in Birmingham. I lived in Cambridge. I would drive up a couple of hours and spend a couple of days with him. And we got to know each other well. And this one decision I was facing would be awkward for me in my conscience before the Lord. And I loved 
the way Jeffrey simply uh, but clearly answered it. He was almost 90 at the time, but with a, a quivering voice and ever-precise Oxbridge enunciation, he repeated the simple words that his father had told him seven decades earlier when he sent him off to boarding school. And he knew that he would be living among Anglicans. And to him, as a nonconformist, that sounded threatening. And so he said he would be facing many temptations. He said, my father told me these simple words that I've always found useful to remember. Do thy duty, that is best. Leave unto thy Lord the rest. Not profound poetry. Profound truth. Do thy duty, that is best. Leave unto thy Lord the rest. I think that's a summary of God's word here. So then, those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. Brothers and sisters, let's pray that we can rejoice even in the sufferings that we are called to as Christians and particularly as ministers of God's word, doing our duty and simply leaving to God the rest of the matter. Let's pray together. Lord God, we thank you for your kindness to us in Christ. We thank you for the sufferings he has endured for us. We thank you, too, for the sufferings which drive us out of ourselves to rely on you. Help us to have faith to trust you through the particular sufferings that you apportion to each one of us. Help us to rejoice and to bring you glory and honor even today. Help us to consider it all joy for our good and for your glory. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.